0: Hi, I'm in Japan,
1: I'm Frank Ling.
0: And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles
1: Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show.
0: That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Greg Kreitzer will join us to discuss the end of aging. So, stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000.
1: And our world-famous question a week.
0: Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, living a long and healthy life is perhaps the most common goal for every individual. But how can we live a long and healthy life? Do anti-aging compounds work? And can society support a robustly aging population? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Greg Kreitzer. Mr. Kreitzer is a longtime science and medical journalist whose work appears in the L.A. Times, the Times of London, and the New York Times, author of numerous best-selling books, including Fatland and Generation Rx. His newest release, Eternity Soup, Inside the Quest to End Aging, explores this topic for a general audience. Uh, Mr. Kreitzer, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and I think this is really a very fascinating book, Eternity Soup. First of all, why did you decide to write this book?
1: Uh, There were really two reasons. One was my mother. (laughs) My mother and stepfather live in Palm Springs, which is a heavily elderly area affluent elderly. And I had gone to see them for lunch after spending quite a bit of time in various laboratories around the country. You know, I proceeded to tell them what to expect in terms of aging. And I said, the gold standard is really that you live to about age 85 or so and that healthy and then you drop off very quickly. Uh, This is what's known as rectangularizing the morbidity curve. Um, They both looked at me like I was from the moon. And they said, well, that's not how we think of aging at all. Uh, we're both going to live to over 100. We're going to be healthy. We don't believe what you're saying at all. We, in fact, we take something called anti-aging medicine. So that was the first thing. You know, you, When your mother tells you you're wrong, it's usually a good idea to take a look at what you think. The other was this vast industry that has been spawned just over the last 10 years, dedicated to anti-aging medications, compounds, etc., some of which is based on science, certainly almost all of which cites science. I wanted to give people sort of a hard-headed but entertaining primer about how to evaluate these various claims for themselves.
0: And how do most of these so-called anti-aging approaches really stack up scientifically?
1: So this is uh, in, in the realm of what I call cash therapy. Most of these compounds really don't do anything. They basically make your wallet thinner. One thing though is the, this realm of hormone replacement therapy, and hormone replacement therapy is controversial, it's always changing, uh, it drives women especially insane because about every 10 years the experts change their mind, but there's clearly some benefits for some people of hormone replacement therapy. The question is, can you really call that anti-aging? You know, is it really turning back the hands of the clock as inevitable uh, commercials and advertisements for it? And my read is, is no, but that what they can do is make aging more comfortable.
0: Hmm. So more uh, of this kind of rectangularizing than extending?
1: I think so, although I think that life expectancy may continue to go up, partly because of these uh, inventions. What we really, I think what we really need to do is take some of the anti-aging medical claims and subject them to the same kind of rigorous testing that we do everything else. My gut tells me that we will probably find that some of them are quite beneficial, but that probably what we really need to do is spend time on how much and what kind of individuals benefit the most from it.
0: Why is it that most of these approaches haven't been subjected to that kind of scrutiny?
1: There's really two things going on. Uh, one, most of these compounds are not patentable. <laughs> and if you can't patent something, the, the drug companies are not interested in, and, and the drug companies are the ones that have the money to do this kind of testing. So that's one reason. I think the second reason is that the anti-aging industry itself has been very reluctant to pony up any money to study these things. They would rather kind of cruise off this obscure minor studies anecdotal evidence then subject their compounds to really rigorous testing so i think it's really both sides of the equation deserve a little bit of blame for that
0: but but usually with the case with drug companies the approach is to take something that's widely available and off patent and just to derivatize it a little and uh, and make it their own
1: yeah they will they'll they'll add a sulfur molecule or something and call it their own but if you look at the development pipelines for something like Eli Lilly, you will see more testing of androgens, of male hormone replacement, and new submissions for new delivery systems, as they call it, for, for male testosterone, similarly for a bunch of other hormones that were normally usually overlooked but now are seen as a possible part of what they call age management medicine.
0: Have there been any really rigorous scientific studies on any of these type of compounds or approaches?
1: There have been some on testosterone, some on human growth hormone. Generally, what they find is that they are not as unsafe as people said, but they're also not as effective as other people said. I'm sure you know with hormones, they are really idiosyncratic. I mean, what helps one person it just does nothing for the next person. And if you're talking about human growth hormone, which can cost twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year between the actual drug and the monitoring, uh, you're talking about $30,000 a year for nothing. And that's a pretty big deal. I think that probably there's the role for maybe some off-patent stuff, off-patent human growth hormone that might benefit, let's say, the elderly once they get into their 70s and start losing muscle mass really quickly. That might be a huge benefit. But clearly, you know, we need more testing before we can prescribe it on a mass basis.
0: Mm. What about the other side of the coin? Uh, What are some popular approaches that are false, just quackery?
1: outright false. Well, you know, I would say anybody that goes to a doctor and walks out with $300 worth of vitamins is just just send me the money instead because, you know, there's almost no benefit to taking enormous amounts of vitamins and mineral supplements. And, and what you will tend to see in these operations is you will go in and, and you know, you basically what you really want is to, uh, hormone supplementation. Well, what the doctor will sell you is this whole age management program, which usually involves two or $300 uh, extra a month, just for these various supplements, protein drinks, etc And, I think that's where just a lot of money is wasted. And that's actually one reason I wanted to do the book. I wanted people to be able to have this this primer to say, well, you know, maybe I'm willing to pay this much to just try hormone replacement, but I'm not going to pay all of that money for, for stuff I don't need. I guess it comes back to the, the one of the first reasons for doing the book.
0: Mm. Given, given those reasons, what do your parents think of what you found?
1: you know they're pretty moderate and and they don't do anything to excess and that was the same with anti-aging medicine I mean they are not the kind who get up in the morning and take 14 different pills and then at night take 14 different pills they both mainly use uh, compounded hormones my mother estrogen and my stepfather uh, testosterone, and they're quite, you know, like I say, modest, very modest low doses, and I think they would say that um, there's modest benefits. Uh, My mother would say, well, her skin is a little bit thicker, energy and cognitive abilities are up. My stepfather would say definite loss of fat and gain of muscle, but again, you know, it's not turning back the hands of time. It is, I think, making their aging a little better, easier
0: classic studies, the caloric restriction experiments, which mm-hmm. actually has been shown to vastly expand the lifespan.
1: Of, of mammals, not but mammals. Not, of human, not of human beings yet. Right. That was one of the most fascinating things. No one really had dug into the story of the guy who first proposed caloric restriction um, as a way of extending um, lifespan. And uh, scientifically, and this was a guy in the 20s and 30s named Clive McKay who began experimenting on rats and started asking the question, uh, why do these rats live so much longer that are starved? And that really led to the basic paradigm of caloric restriction, lifespan extension. And to this day, there is really nothing else that predictably extends maximum lifespan than caloric restriction.
0: Hmm. Has it been the case that people now try to promote this as a way of life? I mean, I understand it would be very difficult to live on the kind of diets that uh, would be required.
1: Uh, People do promote it. and the Caloric Restriction Society, my bet is they've got a couple thousand members. They practice what they call calorically restricted optimal nutrition. So they're probably around 1,750 to 2,000 calories a day. Very closely watched in terms of, you know, make sure the right protein carbohydrates, etc. we know now with that group of people, there's one sign that the aging process is retarded, and that is in the carotid artery, which, as you know, as you get older, tends to get blocked up, and that's why people get strokes. We know with this group of people that they do not get that same increase in, uh, in clots in their carotid artery. That's pretty much the only medically significant thing we know about caloric restriction in humans. Uh, except that they become cold, uninterested in sex, and a little bit grumpy.
0: It's a big (laughs) trade-off.
1: It's a big trade-off. No pizza, no
0: (laughs) sex. (laughs) What's the point of living, really?
1: (laughs) Exactly. Well, you know, the the classic thing they say about caloric restriction is that You know, it may not make you live forever, but you will feel like it.
0: (laughs) An interesting compound that has been bandied about related to the caloric restriction is compound resveratrol, Mm -hmm. which has been said to mimic some of the effects of caloric restriction. Is is there evidence for that?
1: Well, there's evidence in mice, but only in fat mice. Uh, When you try the same compound on normal mice, who eat a normal diet, it does not extend their lifespan. And that's something that's been kind of overlooked in the last year or so because they continue to get an enormous amount of press about resveratrol. And I don't know why no one has focused on some of the problems of it. For example, at the core of the resveratrol claim is that it mimics caloric restriction by pushing down insulin-like growth factor, okay, which is a hormone that takes care of your body. We have to have it. But we know that in some mammals that the growth hormone receptor is mutated, and, and, and so the thought was that, well, can we mimic that inhibition of insulin-like growth factor? The problem is that human beings do very poorly with low insulin-like growth factor. In fact, they die early. They cannot fight infection. Also, the, the theory is kind of shot, shot down by the first data we have about centenarians and insulin-like growth factor. Uh, in general, is not low. In fact, only six out of 200 centenarians in one study had the mutated growth hormone receptor. So slowly but surely, the IGF-1 paradigm, ratcheting down blood sugars, et cetera, it is not paying off in terms of lifespan extension. It is paying off in terms of, of potential diabetes drugs. Hmm.
0: A question that arises is, if any of these approaches really work, is society really able to accommodate a large and growing population of, of elderly into the centenarian age?
1: Yeah, and you think about it, by 2050, a quarter of the population will be over 65. There'll be a million people over 100 years old. Uh, there are 90,000 now, so this is a this is a pretty dramatic change in only 40 years. As you might imagine, there's all kinds of uh, actuarial data being crunched in Washington D.C. about that this is going to destroy our society. But there's some other stuff that that suggests maybe not. One is that clearly we're going to have to work more years, okay? And but what that also means is that you're getting more productivity and you're getting more tax revenue, so that may partially help offset some of these problems. I don't, the economic part of it wasn't a big focus for me. I was very interested in the cultural change, going from this youth culture to a culture that's much more elderly, and reflecting the values of the elder culture, if you will. I think that's gonna be a vast change, and we're already seeing it, you know, slowly but surely, um, at least politically, and that's a pretty good sign that you're gonna see uh, more change culturally. Money will drive it. I mean, the media only focuses on things that are driven by money. And I mean, I don't don't mean that cynically either. I just mean that that's the fact and I think that you will see uh, much better coverage of issues that, that affect aging people but I also think that you will see kind of standards tweaked a little bit you know what considered interesting or important I think will change I think we will hopefully have a little bit of the wisdom of people who've lived longer uh, percolating through the society where now not to sound like an old guy but you know I do think we have this kind of hysterical youth culture that permeates pretty much everything in the society so I, I welcome this shift.
0: Uh, youth was always thought of as just the holding pen for uh, wisdom in old age, and perhaps that will indeed shift too. I hope so. Um, so after having researched all these elements of, of anti-aging, do you think that this has become a bigger drive recently, that now people want to live longer, that they feel the technology is there to live longer?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right. I mean, there's kind of a chicken-egg thing. Well, there's more of us, and people say are saying that we can live longer better Therefore, let's try it. And I think, you know, this is part of American culture. I mean, not only are we more generally experimental and pioneering, but we're also willing to pay for it. (laughs) And so I think that that drives it. But I I just think the sheer numbers and the fact that we've been – kind of nurtured on this notion that, that pretty much anything is possible when it comes to the human body. I mean, we've, we've been told that, you know, you can uh, slow down uh, disease by taking a drug that, that depresses the accumulation of plaque. I mean, that's, if you think about it, you know, statins and blood pressure medications were the first anti-aging medicine because we know that two things happen inevitably in aging. We, we lose the ability to maintain a good blood pressure we lose the ability to maintain a good blood fat and we lose the ability to maintain muscle mass. And I think in in all three, and we lose the ability to maintain good blood sugar and all of these things are the subject of you know, big pharmaceutical drugs that many, many people take. So I think that it just generally follows to, to start asking, well, you know, look, I'm in my 70s and I'm, I'm experiencing all of this muscle wasting. I don't want to be frail. What, you know, what's, what do you got? What, do you, what can I try?
0: What would be the take-home message for those interested in anti-aging medicine? What should they be paying attention to? What are the, the real scientific valid claims out there?
1: Well, first pay attention to your wallet. I mean, do you have the time and money to lose anywhere from 500 to $2,000 a month? Because generally you're not going to be looking for anything else but hormones. Uh, that's what's out there that offers some people some benefits. So the question is, can I afford to lose this money and can I afford not to get anything out of this? My concerns, unless you have a high profile of cancer in your background and your history, that's The safety is not the issue to me. The issue is efficacy and what can you expect out of it. And I, I would say you've got to uh, approach it with a fairly thick wallet and, you know, a, a scrutinizing eye. I'm hoping that, you know, the book I've already been told is in some of these anti-aging circles has started percolating in and it's making people a little bit uh, uncomfortable uh, because I don't come right out and condemn it, but I, I also say there's there are problems with it. So, so I think the main take-home message is to bone up um, the arguments pro and con are not hard to understand, and the science is actually kind of entertaining. So I, that's what I, I would say. Just empower yourself with information.
0: Hmm. You did mention uh, the main anti-aging societies out there. What What is their take on the book?
1: Well, the American Association for Anti-aging Medicine is huge. It's in every country. Um, they have giant conferences every year all over the world. And my bet is that they they will not like it because my book because you know, I'm basically saying that there's a good chunk of what they're selling that is just baloney. I mean, you go to one of their conferences and they they're selling ointments called virgin again, you know. I mean, you can't take it even seriously, but you know, they they will marshal some scientific case, you know, some but something about, you know, membrane permeability blah, 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 therefore this will be good. So I would be, say be very skeptical of the uh, scientific claim
0: of really of any of this stuff. Uh, well, it, it does look like big business, and uh, one does need to be careful. Absolutely. Mm, all right. Well, the new book is called Eternity Soup, Inside the Quest to End Aging. Mr. Kreitzer, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
1: That was great to be with you. Thank you.
0: And you were just listening to Greg Kreiser discussing the end of aging. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. Maybe
1: I don't really want to know how you in girls? Cause I just want to fly morning rain I soaked you to the bone Maybe I just want to fly Want to live but don't want to die Maybe I just want to breathe
0: All right, it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know the following topic. For the following five items, do you think that they will be around in 100 years? Uh, Mr. Chrysler you ready to play the game? Yes, I am. <laughs> okay, here we go. Around in 100 years, item number one, the iPad.
1: No, uh, well, obsolescence. I mean, I, I I think it was obsolete yesterday, wasn't it?
0: <laughs> as soon as it was announced, yeah.
1: Yeah. So no, I doubt it. I doubt it.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, number two, around in one hundred years, Texas Hold'em poker.
1: Yes. Yeah. That's that's, you know, that's something that is not patented. That many people can learn very quickly, and that there's great short-term payoffs from it. So I think and people will always have the impulse to gamble, and and that. That particular particular game is kind of is kind of resonant. Even its name.
0: <laughs> so uh, we'll be playing cards into uh, into our absolutely. Uh, number four is a universal health care plan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you want the cynical answer? I think we will have that. Um, and I think it's purely the demographics will push it. I mean, people. You know, we we, we while we do have an. Uh, a, a, Growing elderly population. We also have a very young population coming up behind it, and those people are not going to put up with uh, the kind of nonsense that that we've had to put up with.
0: Mm-hmm. We just have to wait a little longer, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, number four: reality television. God, I hope not. Um,
1: <laughs> I, I don't. I really don't know. I would hope not. Um, I would hope we would go back to kind of classic storytelling. Uh, I, let me I'll say no it's not going to be
0: around <laughs> yeah <laughs> alright and and finally number five around in 100 years Viagra no there'll be something much better <laughs>
1: much much better I mean they, you know Viagra was supposed to be a heart drug it was, it was for angina mm-hmm. um, it was just a side effect that, that sold the drug and I think there's all kinds of stuff coming down the pipeline that that will work on other uh, vascular systems besides the smooth muscle smooth muscle tissue.
0: All right, well, good news for those uh, yeah hundred year old males in the future then. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Mr. Kreitzer, uh, I want to thank you for sticking around, playing our game, and of course, again, talking about your book, which is called Eternity Soup: Inside the Quest to End Aging. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Okay. Bye bye.